1: PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? is a very important episode of this project. A project which we began all the way back in early November. If you've never listened to this podcast before, I would recommend checking out some of the earlier episodes. Perhaps checking out the previous 63 might be a good idea. Otherwise, if you're just here for this famous scene, then I hope you enjoy this installment. If you've recovered from that absolutely enormous episode that we released then congratulations. But I have to say, I really have received some good feedback from it, and I have also really enjoyed doing it. The story must go on, and we must continue providing our analysis, providing our research, even in the final month of this project. I mean, really, it's more like a month and a half, but still, there's an awful lot of work still to do, and an awful lot of stories still to come. You might be wondering, how on earth are you able to do all this, Zach? Well, if you don't know the answer to that by now, This podcast is my job. I'm one of those lucky few history podcasters that can say that their podcast is their job. And because of that, I'm able to spend so much time and go into so much detail on topics like these. The reason why I'm able to make this podcast my job is because you support it so well on Patreon, as we've said numerous times before. But we've also said that there's no need to go and support on Patreon if you don't want to spend your hard-earned monies. To support this show, to make it sustainable into the future, all you need to do is do your little bit to make sure you spread the word. By getting the word of this podcast out there, we can reach new history friends who maybe beforehand didn't even realise they needed this podcast in their life, but now have subsequently realised that in fact they do. If you'd like to do your bit to help this process happen, all you have to do is tell somebody about it. Or if you're on Twitter, follow us on Twitter at podcast and retweet, or comment, or like, or whatever it is people do on Twitter, to get our words spread on that platform. That's our call to action for this episode, but of course you should know that we have a QA and a on the way very shortly, and if you'd like to send some questions in for that, then please do so through the usual channels. I've already got a whole load of questions lined up already, you guys really are very curious about all sorts of different things, and of course, as well, I have a big bit of news to drop on you guys, so tune in for the episode for that, and for the fact that it's our 7th birthday on the 18th of May, so tune in to say happy birthday. Otherwise though guys, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this very weighted instalment. This is the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 64. Today is the 7th of May 2019, and on this day in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Of all the scenes which graced the Paris Peace Conference, the one that saw the Germans confronted with the terms of the peace treaty for the first time has to be up there with the most weighted and dramatic. Harold Nicholson was uncharacteristically subdued about the significance of the moment. Peace treaty presented to Germans at Trianon Palace Hall, was all that his diary revealed about the moment, which suggests that he wasn't present at the time. In case we need a refresher, the historian Thomas A. Bailey summarised the steps leading up to this significant moment in the afternoon of the 7th of May 1919, writing, The German delegates had arrived on the 29th of April, but there was still no treaty. The explanation is that during the closing days of April, the Fiume and Shantung crises came to a head, and for a while it seemed as though there would be nothing to present to the Germans. Agreement was finally reached, and the various parts of the treaty on which the numerous committees had been working were thrown together and sent to the printer. The first printed copies were not available until the early morning of May 7th, 1919, the day of the presentation of the pact to the German delegates. It is an almost incredible fact that probably no single one of the Allied statesmen had read the treaty as a whole until the day it was handed to the Germans. This was a significant day indeed, and it had been due for some time, and delayed many times as well. House noted in his diary in the evening of the 7th of May that... It is strange that the presentation of the treaty to the Germans should occur on the anniversary of the sinking of the Lusitania. This was not by design but by chance, for we hoped to present it in the last week and again on Monday or Tuesday of this week. Notwithstanding the difficulties in reaching this point, it was hard to deny that with the presentation of this treaty to the Germans, a watershed moment would have passed. Theoretically at least, The Allies would now be on the home stretch of peacemaking. But first, they had to get to Versailles. House recorded that. I started for Versailles shortly after 2 o'clock. I drove very rapidly and made what is usually a 40 to 45 minute trip in half an hour. Clemenceau and a few others were already there. Balfour soon followed with the other members of the British delegation. Orlando and Sunino came in shortly after and I suggested to Balfour that we walk down the hall to meet them. This seemed to please the Italians very much. Of course, it had been stated before, but the point deserves reiterating. Clemenceau had not accidentally selected Versailles as the location for either this formal presentation of the peace treaty or as the location for the final signature of the peace treaty. Symbolism in the Franco-German relationship had punctuated the Paris Peace Conference several times already, so it was hardly much surprise when the palace of Louis Fourteenth and the location for the proclamation of the German Empire was chosen as the place where Weimar Germany would be humbled and the Allied triumph proclaimed. Debate had raged among the German delegation over what kind of tone they should use. Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau, the leader of the German delegation and Weimar Germany's foreign minister, was told on the 6th of May that the following day he would be presented with the treaty's terms and he since had learned from sketches and reports that he would be sitting at a table in the centre of the room as the eyes of all present in the plenary conference looked down on him. Brockdorf-Ranzo actually brought two different speeches with him to the plenary conference on the afternoon of the 7th of May. One was non-committal in short, the other was longer and more defiant, but by no means explosive. By this point, the Germans had not learned of the full terms of the treaty, even though they had grasped onto rumours. The appearance of Brockdorf-Rantzau before the plenary conference would be the first opportunity he would have to speak in the name of his country, and the scene promised to be thick with significance and anxiety. Certainly, poor Brockdorf-Rantzau shook all the way to the Trian Palace at Versailles. The room which Brockdorf-Rantzau walked into was positively jammed. A German journalist later recorded that only Indians and Australian Aborigines were absent among the races of the earth. And the comment seemed appropriate when one considered the manner and range of peoples present. Were they really all here to judge brockdorf Ransau and the country he represented? Not really, because such judgment had already been passed and it lay in the treaty which would soon be symbolically handed over to the Germans. By 3pm, everyone was seated and ready in the Great Hall, except the Polish premier and pianist, Paderewski, House recalled, who, as usual, came in late. He evidently cannot get it out of his head that he is not giving one of his great concerts in which the audience is always supposed to be seated before he enters. As Proctor Fransow entered the room, a witness described that he looked ill, drawn and nervous, which was hardly a surprise. It was all down to brockdorf Ransau to represent his country to the Allies, and he had still not decided, even at this late stage, what Tony was going to take with them. He would surely have felt like a lamb given to slaughter, but he did his utmost to maintain his composure as a statesman and minister of government. In an unusual echo of the old world, those present rose to their feet as brockdorf Ransau entered the room, and both brockdorf Ransau and George Clemenceau bowed to each other before the session began. When the session did actually begin, Brockdorf Ransau had already started with a bang before he had uttered a word, because he remained seated the entire time. Various interpretations have come through to explain why he remained seated. A simple reason is that the man continued to shake before, throughout, and after the ordeal, and he may have feared for his reputation if such shaking had been detected. A possibility is that he determined to sit in an effort to stick it to the assembled allies, but whatever his reasoning, the move added significant weight to the negative impression which he made. Clemenceau, as president of the gathering, was the only figure to speak, so the allies expected at this point, since there was no guarantee Brockdorf-Ranzau would speak after his representatives symbolically received the treaty. The French Premier gave no hint of emotion other than coldness, and he harboured none of the nerves which racked Brockdorf-Ranzau, which could serve as a further explanation why the German foreign minister determined to sit. Due to the importance of this speech, which was delivered on this day 100 years ago, I believe it is important to bring it to you in its entirety. Like everything else which comes from the minutes of these meetings, I must give a shout-out to the foreign relations of the United States papers, which are freely available online, and which is where I got all this from. Let's detail what the French Premier said. And as we read this out, try and imagine the scene, try and imagine the room full of people, thick with emotion, thick with anticipation, as all eyes rested on the German delegate. Gentlemen, this can be neither the time nor the place for superfluous words. You see before you the accredited representatives of the Allied and Associated Powers, both small and great, which have waged without intermission for more than four years the pitiless war which was imposed on them. The hour has struck for the weighty settlement of our accounts. You asked us for peace. We are disposed to grant it to you. This volume, which the Secretary-General of the Conference will shortly hand to you, will show you the conditions which we have fixed. Every facility which you may require for examining its text will be granted to you, including, of course, the usages of courtesy commonly practiced among all civilized peoples, In order to acquaint you with another aspect of my thought, I am compelled to add that this second piece of Versailles, which is about to become the subject of our discussion, has been too dearly bought by the peoples represented here for us not to be unanimously resolved to secure by every means in our power all the legitimate satisfactions which are our due. I will now make the plenipotentiaries aware of the procedure in regard to discussions which have been adopted. If, thereupon, anyone desires to offer any remarks, he will, of course, be permitted to speak. There will be no oral discussions, and their observations must be furnished in writing. The German plenipotentiaries have a period of 15 days within which to hand in their written observations, both in English and French, on the treaty as a whole, the headings of which are as follows. Clemenceau then essentially read out the contents page of the Treaty of Versailles before resuming his speech. Before this period of 15 days expires, the German delegates will be entitled to send their replies or to put questions in regard to these matters. The Supreme Council, after examining the observations, which may be furnished within the period laid down, will send a written reply to the German delegation, stating the period within which it must hand in its final reply on all questions. I will add that, when the plenipotentiaries of the German Empire have given us a written reply, let us say within two, three, four or five days, we shall of course not await the expiration of the 15 days delay before acquainting them in turn with our answer. In order to lose no time, the discussion will be started as soon as possible in the form in which I have described. If anyone has any remarks to make in that connection, we shall be at his disposal as soon as this speech has been translated. The speech was then translated first into English and then into German, and the recently completed and printed text of the Conditions of Peace was handed to the principal German plenipotentiary by the Secretary-General of the Peace Conference. Count Ulrich von brockdorf rantzau who we met first in episode 60, then read out in German the following statement. At brockdorf rantzaus request, his statement was translated sentence by sentence, first into French, and then into English. This exhaustive process cannot have endeared him to his audience, but it was the content of the speech that represented the true dynamite. It was a rebuke of such Allied terms as had never been anticipated. The arrogance, condescension and ignorance of their position, the Allies would feel, was clearly on display here. The German Foreign Minister, by the way, had decided to go with a longer, more defiant speech, and all the while seated before this room full of Allied delegates. The Allies were only made aware of brockdorf rantzaus intention to make his speech when Clemenceau asked if anyone in the room wished to speak. The other well-behaved delegates remained silent, but brockdorf rantzau put up his hand. Perhaps out of a sheer sense of morbid curiosity, Clemenceau allowed brockdorf rantzau to speak, but if he was feeling generous, the French Premier quickly became enraged. Any latent sympathy which Germany might have had was effectively erased by brockdorf rantzau here. And as we did with Clemenceau's opening speech before him, the weight of the moment compels me to read out what Brockdorff-Rantzau said, on this day, 100 years ago, in full. To do justice to the moment, try and remember now the shock and surprise which many delegates in this room would have had at the very fact that this German delegate was willing to speak and that he had asked to speak. Many people would have wanted to hear what he had to say, but as he continued in his speech the anger and sense of tension would have surely increased in the room. Proctor Rantzow said, Gentlemen, we are deeply impressed with the lofty character of the task which has brought us together with you, namely, to give the world a speedy and enduring peace. We cherish no illusions as to the extent of our defeat, the degree of our impotence. We know that the might of German arms is broken. We know the force of the hatred which confronts us here, and we have heard the passionate demand that the victors should both make us pay as vanquished and punish us as guilty. We are required to admit that we alone are war guilty. Such an admission, on my lips, would be a lie. We are far from seeking to exonerate Germany from all responsibility for the fact that this world war broke out and was waged as it was. The attitude of the former German government at the Hague Peace Conferences, their actions and omissions in the tragic 12 days of July may have contributed to the calamity, but we emphatically combat the idea that Germany, whose people were convinced that they were waging a defensive war, should alone be laden with the guilt. None of us will wish to assert that the calamity dates only from the fateful moment when the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary fell a victim to the assassin's hand. During the last 50 years, the imperialism of all European states has chronically poisoned the international situation. The policy of retaliation and that of expansion, as well as disregard of the rights of peoples to self-determination, contributed to the disease of Europe which reached its crisis in the World War. The Russian mobilisation deprived statesmen of the possibility of effecting a cure and placed the decision in the hands of the military authorities. Public opinion in all the countries of our adversaries is echoing with the crimes which Germany is alleged to have committed during the war. Here, again, we are ready to acknowledge wrong which has been done. We have not come here to belittle the responsibility of the men who conducted the war politically and economically, and to disown breaches of international law which have actually been committed. We repeat the declaration which was made in the German Reichstag at the beginning of the war. Wrong has been done to Belgium and we wish to redress it. Moreover, as regards the methods of conducting the war, Germany was not alone at fault. Every European nation knows of deeds and persons on whose memory their best citizens are reluctant to dwell. I do not wish to answer reproaches with reproaches, but if it is from us that penance is demanded, then the armistice must not be forgotten. Six weeks passed before we obtained it, and six months before we learnt of your conditions of peace. Crimes in war may not be excusable, but they are committed in the struggle for victory, in anxiety to preserve national existence, in a heat of passion which blunts the conscience of nations. The hundreds of thousands of non-combatants who have perished since the 11th of November through the blockade were killed with cold deliberation after victory had been won and assured to our adversaries. Think of that when you speak of guilt and atonement. The measure of the guilt of all participants can only be determined by an impartial inquiry of a neutral commission, before which all the principal actors in the tragedy should have their say and to which all records should be disclosed. We have demanded such an inquiry, and we repeat the demand. Though we stand alone at this conference, without allies, and confronted by our numerous adversaries, yet we are not defenceless. You yourself have brought us an ally, justice, which was guaranteed to us by the agreement relating to the basis of peace. Between the 5th of October and 5th of November, 1918, the Allied and Associated Governments abandoned the idea of a peace of violence, and inscribed the words, peace of justice, on their banner. On the 5th of October 1918, the German government put forward the principles of the President of the United States of America as a basis of peace and was informed on the 5th of November by Mr. Lansing, Secretary of State, that the Allied and Associated Powers had accepted this basis with two specific reservations. President Wilson's principles, therefore, became binding upon both belligerent parties, upon you, as well as upon us, and also upon our former allies. These principles, taken individually, demand of us grievous national and economic sacrifices, but the sacred and fundamental rights of all nations are protected by this agreement. The conscience of the world is behind it. No nation will be permitted to violate it with impunity. On this basis you will find us prepared to examine the peace preliminaries which you lay before us, with the fixed purpose of sharing with you the common task of rebuilding that which has been destroyed, of righting the wrongs that have been done, first and foremost, the wrong done to Belgium, and of pointing mankind to new goals of political and social progress. In view of the bewildering number of problems which beset the fulfilment of our common purpose, we ought to refer to the principal questions individually at the earliest possible moment to special commissions of experts for discussion on the basis of the draft presented by you. In this connection it will be our chief task to build up anew the shattered human energy of the nations concepted by international protection of the life, health and liberty of the working classes. I consider our next aim to be the restoration of the territory of Belgium and northern France, which were occupied by us and devastated by the war. We solemnly accepted the obligation to do this and are determined to carry it out to such extent as may be agreed upon between us. To do this, we are thrown back on the cooperation of our former adversaries. We cannot complete the task, Without the technical and financial participation of the victors, you can only carry it through with our aid. It must be the desire of impoverished Europe that reconstruction should be carried out as successfully and economically as possible. This desire, however, can only be fulfilled by means of a clear and business-like understanding in regard to the best methods. The worst method would be continued to have the work done by German prisoners of war. Such labour is certainly cheap. It would, however, cost the world dear if hate and despair were aroused in the German people at the thought of their captive sons, brothers and fathers continuing to languish in their former bondage after the peace preliminaries. We can attain to no enduring peace without the immediate settlement of this question, which has dragged on far too long already. Our experts on both sides will have to study how the German people can best meet its obligations of financial reparation without breaking down under the heavy load. Such a collapse would deprive those entitled to compensation of the advantages to which they have a claim and would entail irreparable confusion in European economic existence as a whole. Both victors and vanquished must be on their guard against this threatening danger and its incalculable consequences. There's only one way of warding it off, unreserved recognition of the economic and social solidarity of peoples, of a free and comprehensive League of Nations. Gentlemen, The lofty conception that the most terrible calamity in the history of the world should bring about the greatest advance in human progress has been formulated and will be realised. If the goal is to be attained, if the slain in this war are not to have died in vain, then the portals of the League of Nations must be thrown open to all peoples of goodwill. The German nation is earnestly prepared to accommodate itself to its hard lot, provided the foundations agreed upon for peace remain unshaken. A peace which cannot be defended in the name of justice before the whole world, would continually call forth fresh resistance. No one could sign it with a clear conscience, for it would be impossible of fulfilment. No one could undertake the guarantee of fulfilment, which its signature would imply. We will examine the document submitted to us with all goodwill, and in the hope that the final result of our meeting can be subscribed by us all. Even though one could argue from listening to this that brockdorff rantzau hadn't been terribly provocative or controversial, the whole act had left an appalling impression on those present. brockdorff rantzaus refusal to lie down and take Clemenceau's barbs meant that he was guaranteed to come under fire, and come under fire he certainly did. Lloyd George reportedly broke a pen in half while listening to him. It was likely his presentation, as much as his content, that did the damage to non-German speakers since his speech was, don't forget, translated line by line as he said it, and he was sitting down, which added to the sense of disrespect. This dragged out the whole process, and it made brockdorf Ransau appear even more demanding and arrogant. This is the most tactless speech I have ever heard, Wilson said afterwards. The Germans are really a stupid people. They always do the wrong thing. It was deplorable that we let him talk, added Lloyd George in agreement. Lord Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, was among the minority who did not take the scene so personally. "'I make it a rule never to stare at people when they are in obvious distress,' declared Balfour to Harold Nicholson shortly afterwards, "'but he was certainly in the minority in that respect. "'Those present had stared, and almost inevitably had taken offence. "'Indeed, it seems likely that any stance other than complete capitulation on Proctor Francais' part would have offended Allied opinion.'" If the Allies were offended by brockdorf rantzaus brazen performance, then they were fortunate to be out of earshot from the shaken German foreign minister when the actual terms of the Treaty of Versailles were learned of, as the German delegates spent the next 24 hours poring over every last detail of the treaty and their fury grew and grew. When one enraged German delegate erupted the next morning by exclaiming over the telephone to Berlin, The Tsar Basin, Poland, Silesia, 123 milliards to pay, and for all that we're supposed to say thank you very much? He shouted so loudly into the phone that the French Secret Service, who were tapping that phone, were unable to make out his words. When the Germans gathered together at midnight for a quick meal, they were still buzzing over the contents of the treaty. All our colonies, Germany to be left out of the League, almost the whole merchant fleet, if that's what Wilson calls open diplomacy, were common themes. As they sat, a troubled German stumbled into the room. Gentlemen, I am drunk. That may be proletarian, but with me there was nothing else for it. This shameful treaty has broken me, for I believed in Wilson until today. Gustav Nosk, Germany's Minister for Defence and a key player in the suppression of the Spartacist revolt, was more confrontational when he learned of the terms. Well, I'll give you some open diplomacy. You Americans, go home and bury yourself with your Wilson, he barked at an American journalist in Weimar. With the publication of these terms, Wilson's image was transformed in Germany from the potential saviour of the country who had helped broker its exit from the war with a fair deal to a traitor, an opportunist, and a hypocrite. The resentment remained fierce well after 1919. When Woodrow Wilson died in 1924, the German embassy in Washington even refused to lower its flag. For the next fortnight, Germany and Germans would be electrified by the news of their final peace treaty. But should they really have been so surprised? Germany's foreign office, in imagining the worst aspects of the peace, had actually mentally prepared itself for a desperate scenario involving total occupation of the Rhineland and reparations of 60 billion marks. Remember at this point, as we know, the Germans were required to sign a blank cheque for reparations, though 20 billion marks was required to pay for the provisions and staffing by the Allied powers. The reaction seems explained by the fact that while they had prepared for the worst, the Germans had hoped for the best. The Germans have nothing left but hope, remarked an American observer in April 1919, continuing, but having only that, I think they have clung to it the hope that the Americans would do something, the hope that the final terms would not be so severe as the armistice indicated, and so on. Subconsciously, I think the Germans have been more optimistic than they realise. When they see the terms in cold print, there will be intense bitterness, hate and desperation. Within a few days, an additional outrage was being expressed on one article in particular, Article 231, which was to become, as we know the war guilt clause, even though that had never been that article's intention. When the young American lawyer John Foster Dulles had helped to craft that article, the understanding was that its purpose was to establish the legal basis for Germany's payment of reparations into the future. Rather than focus on the damage aspect of the article, though, and its link to reparations, the Germans zeroed in on the full responsibility aspect of the article. The Allies had already been given a hint that such a clause would run into difficulties. In his speech delivered on this day 100 years ago, Brockdorf Ransau declared that We're required to admit that we alone are war guilty. Such admission on my lips would be a lie. And Brockdorf Ransau added that while Wilhelm's government may have contributed to the calamity, however, we emphatically combat the idea that Germany, whose people were convinced that they were waging a defensive war, should alone be laden with the guilt. These expressions had been based on a speech which he had prepared before, don't forget, Brockdorff Ransau had even seen the actual terms and it confirms that rumours about blaming Germany were swirling around even if not all Germans could bring themselves to believe them. It is important again to emphasise this idea that the Germans took the ball of war guilt and ran with it. While it might appear like a needlessly technical detail, it's important to underline the fact that the Allies did not want to blame Germany for the outbreak of the war. They wanted to blame her for causing all the damage to the Allies, so as to support calls for reparations. To add to this, we must bear in mind that Austria and Hungary's peace treaties contained similar articles on responsibility for damage, but neither Vienna nor Budapest's government got so worked up about the issue. Perhaps if Article 231 had been the only unpalatable element of the treaty, it would have caused an awful lot less of a fuss, but upon reading it after digesting so many other scandalous terms, German experts interpreted it as merely one more nail in the coffin of justice. This was the view of Zara Steiner, whose epic tome, The Lights That Failed, examined the interwar years in the context of the gathering storm of the Second World War. Steiner concluded... The chaos in the process of peacemaking could hardly have failed to affect its substance. In the end, the last-minute rush of work overwhelmed the coordinating committee created to check through the whole draft treaty, a document of over 200 pages with 440 articles, which consequently failed to eliminate the inevitable inconsistencies. The Council of Four never reviewed the draft treaty in its entirety. Members of the Victor delegations saw the text only a few hours before it was given to the Germans, and it was only then that the harshness of its terms was recognised. The Germans ended up being presented on the 7th of May with a draft treaty to which they were given 15 days to make a written response. Any changes of substance it was feared could unravel the whole treaty. The peacemakers' difficulties were far from over. As was so often the case with the Paris Peace Conference, one watershed moment, one optimistic new step towards resolution, became within a short period yet another chapter in the saga of squabbling anxiety and counterattack. they had waited nearly five months to do it on this day 100 years ago the terms of what would be known as the treaty of versailles had finally been communicated to the germans but the final phase of the peacemaking process was only beginning